see how see how such a legend like he he's still like if we ask him to to do something he'll come and spend some time with the team i mean he wants his volunteer he says he wants to come and chat to to my players after preseason he saw how hard they work i mean such a it's just an incredible human being there how do players at the top level in rugby do what they do and what can young ambitious players learn from them and their journeys to achieve their own dreams in the game? That is the question and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Brian Moylette, former Irish age grade international player, now mental performance coach and welcome to the Offfield Rugby Pod. On today's episode of the podcast, I chat with Christian Estrahazen, who is currently the head coach of the Canada West senior men's team, and for the last number of years was head coach of the University of Cape Town, where Sia Khaleesi, Damien Dialande, and Ebenez Tabeth went. Essie chats about what Sia was like around the team, how to change the culture of a team, and what's important for head coaches to get right. We also chat about limitations in different attacking systems, how you can use theming throughout a season and the benefits of it, and what he learned while spending time in the Crusaders setup. This chat was recorded before the third test of the recent internationals, just as an FYI, so we chat a little bit about that at the start. Lots of learns in this one for coaches and players alike. Last season, Essie coached me when I played for the Vancouver Wave, a rep team here, and we coached together with the Canada West senior men's team. As always, if you have any questions or if I can help with anything, send me a DM on my Instagram, which is at offfieldrugby. So here's episode number 54 with Christian Esterhazen. Dealing with money can be very stressful and especially with everything that's happening in the world right now and stock markets crashing. If you're not an expert, it can be difficult to know what to do. Sparks Wealth is an Irish financial planner and they are experts when it comes to dealing with finances and helping guide you on what's best for your situation. You can book a free call with Will now at Sparks Wealth on their website, sparkswealth.ie. Recently, a family member of mine did just that and was so happy they did so. They said Will guided them through everything in a simple, easy to understand way, no jargon, and it was a brilliant experience. So that's sparkswealth.ie. So have you been watching any of the summer internationals? I have, yeah. It's always always fun to to watch them. I uh, obviously watch the South African matches first. <laughs> um, you know, the tough little, I think South Africa made hard work now of this series. It's it's a pressure match. Uh, you know, it's a third third test this this Saturday, so it's going to be a pressure match, and it's good, I guess. Them they went back to the try to test it for selection wise. So I, I guess the good thing is to put yourself under that kind of pressure. Um, outside of out of a World Cup, see if they can can have a good performance. I think the, the first test wasn't as dominant as they hoped, and I, I thought actually the, the the team they selected in the second test. I mean, there was nineteen changes, so you're missing that important thing called co- cohesion. But it was a strong team; it was formed players, um, and they obviously got booked at the end. So Saturday is going to be interesting, um, and then yeah, um, the Irish and New Zealand is. 
is, is a good one. I actually said to somebody after the first test, I, I can't see that New Zealand will beat Ireland by that bigger margin again. And then actually Ireland went, went to win that. Um, it's interesting to see. I, I think Ireland, they're playing good rugby. I, I enjoy the, the 22 meter attack. They, they're not just like the power game trying to, to pick and go whatever. There's always a little bit of a shape or some lines they're running, which I enjoy. Um, so it will be interesting. Yeah, and then, then England, Australia. I think um, you know that's a. I think Australia's got a lot of injuries, as, as I as I read, and I, I believe England is. I think they were better in the better than the scoreboard said in the first test as well. So probably I will if I have to put my money on somebody. I think Eddie Jones's boys are are going to pull it through. Yeah. Yeah. What do you make of um, the bit of chat around Eddie? Well, it's only in England, but if Eddie Jones go and like that, England aren't playing well. And what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> I, I think I read a comment by Eddie. He said like, you know, his mom phones him. When are you getting sacked? When are you getting sacked? And he said like, he enjoys those moments. I've, I, I've read quite a bit of his books, and I've um, spoken. Was lucky enough to speak to him. On occasion, he's, um, I mean, he made that decision and he's striving under that kind of pressure. And, I mean, I just like him. I think he's, he's a mastermind. And I mean, coaching at the international level, the level of the margins are small. You know, so it's, it's harsh. The English people are always harsh in the media on, on whoever. They almost enjoy it when their teams underperform so that they can go after someone. So I think Eddie Jones is so experienced. He's been there so many times. Um you know, I think he knows how to deal with it. I think he's also over the years learned how to deal with the decision makers around him and the people at the RVU. So I don't know. I, I, don't, I can't. I hope they don't sack him before the World Cup. I don't think that will. Yeah, that will, no, no yeah. way. Um, I love him as well. I've list, listened to his two books, and uh, yeah, I think he's just unreal. And he like he obviously has a plan. It's the same before the last World Cup. They did like that happened as well, and then they got to a final, and. Yeah, then I, I just fear Ireland as well, like best team in the world the year before the World Cup for three <laughs> three cycles in a row. Yeah, we'll see. That's an interesting one. Uh, it's it's going to be like, it's good. There's always eight teams in it, I guess. Or maybe six teams that can win it now. So um, it's going to be a good World Cup. It's mad as well with Safri. You say they're making 19 changes, like that they have that depth. And how would you keep even like that many players involved and France are doing as well with them they sent over like a second team then a third team yeah it's I think in South Africa's case they've they've been fairly conservative selection wise you know over the last four years I mean that's why the cohesion is there and and the guys are knowing how to play together so I, I think you know, with, with so many good players playing in South Africa, in, in Europe and in Japan, I mean, at one stage, many years ago, I think there were over 300 professional South African rugby players playing overseas. So there's, there's so much depth and they get missed because they, they don't play in other countries and maybe they get better opportunities and stuff. So that is a challenge in South Africa is to, to keep those good players, first of all, engaged and interested to, to become Springboks, keep them in the country. I know we, we can select now since Rossi took over, you know, you can select. There's a bit more freedom to select European-based players. And I think um, well, that's a good thing. Why not? Yeah, so... Um, and, and, the, and the URC, I think that's what the that second test really, they rewarded the guys who showed good form and 
obviously, you know, there's a life after World Cup, so you need to start to start thinking about those things. So that's probably what where they're going with this, yeah. Is that a challenge, is there, like keeping people engaged to play with the Springboks? So like the All Blacks, you know, you got to play there. And then that was a challenge of players going away and they've stuck to that. Ireland kind of similar, but um, like, is it just, is it a money thing? Because like the Rand is so weak that, you know, its players are more inclined to go and try and make money versus playing Springboks or is there a challenge there? Yeah, I think it's it's... There's two ways. Like, I think the more sensitive one might be sometimes political. Like, there is unfortunately sometimes you have to select your, your team with, within you know, more re representative teams. So, so you might be the best player, but you're not always going get, to get the nod. And that's something South Africa's bought into. I, I don't think it's most people accept it and we actually like it to, to, to select the representative teams. But I think in, in a lot of cases, People go overseas because, you know, they weren't affected by the political things over here. So, so they go overseas. And then, absolutely, I think the, the rand versus the, the, the pound and the euro, it's a no-brainer. You're a good player. You, you know your career will only span for so many years. So, so go and get the, the money. You know, and now you know at least I can do that. And if I play well, I can still play for the spring box. Yeah. And... So when you mention the political thing there, is that like within South African rugby or within the country as a whole? That you... Yeah, look, it's, it's, I guess it can be sensitive, so I must be careful how I, I'm phrasing this. But yeah, it's, it's within the country. It's, it's in companies, in, in all sports. You know, we, it's called transformation. We, we want to give people that, that didn't grow up in privileged communities like the opportunity, you know, to, to get to that. But yeah, in, in sport, the, the quotas are there. Um, you know, it's you know when when I was at UCT, I, you know, I think we needed to be nine players of color in your match day twenty three. Um, I think it's now gone to ten or eleven, um, and a certain amount has to start. You know, and, and that's good because you know if we don't do that, like look at that talent. That country has got so much. Then, if we don't do that, I mean, we're going to miss out on so much talent. Yeah, and I saw, yeah, hundred percent. And but when Rassi came in, I saw or on was it the documentary Chad with Siakalisi, and they they got rid of that because there was um, that it just wasn't working either way. Because Sia said then that it, like he had people in the media saying like, oh, you're only getting selected because you're black or whatever. And then when he just, rat they chatted about that when they got rid of it for the box, that then it meant everyone's there on merit. And I suppose that's like what you want to get. Uh, that's the, the end of the road, you know, that everyone's just getting selected on merit. But I suppose before that, they, they had to bring in that, was it? Yeah, I think if you get to international level, like you're there because you could. I mean, you mm. proved it over years that you could. And, and, and I must say, from my experience, like, I can honestly say, you know, I don't look at color when I select a team. Like, the, the guys right. now, I think the system over the years have, have come so far that, that the guys I recruited into, into UC, they, they, they are merit. They're not yeah, there yeah, because of, of the color of their skin. Yeah. They're there because they played very well in, in school. And, and you know, the, the next step is, is, is to get into to the university structures, to get into the professional structures. As simple as that. Yeah. And how did you mention UCT there? But how did you get started coaching? Sure, yeah. Coaching for me, I, I literally started 
is the day I left school. Um, as an extra, I went to study after school, but I always um, coached. Like water polo was was a first kind of sport I got into. I guess it was just the season of it, and school finished, and there was a water polo season. Um, you know, I remember I was like 18 years old, and I have to take 14-year-old boys on a on a tour to Johannesburg. You know, driving through Johannesburg, you're an inexperienced driver, you're an inexperienced coach. I don't know how those parents trusted me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but but you learn the ropes through that. And, um, and, and then, you know, like started at my school. I, I think my first team that I coached there was the under nine D team. And I still remember that. It's so cool having those little guys. And they see the coach arrive, they all run and see who can touch you first. And like, um, it's, it's so I started, I really just started because of that. I enjoyed I enjoy sport and I enjoyed to be involved and it's the extra thing that I did. So um, that's how I got initially into it and it just like progressed. Um, water polo was a big part of my life until it just became too much to do both rugby and water polo. So just rugby obviously in South Africa is a bit bigger and there's more opportunities. So so I really like I just focus more on that and um, you know after playing for UCT I, I went into coaching and also started started with a and a twenty C team and literally worked my way up and you know until the first team head coach and then eventually director of rugby. So that's kind of the summary of the coaching journey. Yeah. Cool. And so you played played with UCT and then what well, after you graduated did you just kind of decide to coach versus kind of continue playing or did you do both? Yeah, so I always, I think for, for me, like I always have this thing in my life. I, I I manage my business life and my coaching life. It's always kind of I do both most of most of the time. So you know, I actually graduated at the University of Free State in Bloemfontein, so I played there, and then I I went to do my my internship for accounting in, in Cape Town, and then I played for UCT. I wasn't a student there; I just I just played for for the okay. club, and then. You know, I, I first I, then I went to the Seychelles for a couple of years um, to work. Um, I did, um, you know, on a property development uh, over there. It was a good opportunity. Played some rugby there in the Seychelles. Played for their sevens team. <laughs> so, so you're an international um, player. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and and after after when I when I came back, I was about. 30, so that I wasn't interested to play anymore really at that age. So uh, I just focused on coaching from that point onwards. Cool. And uh, how did you find that? Was like, did you have ambitions to, was there a point where you had ambitions to kind of not take it seriously, but like, you know, become a head coach of a, a top university side? Yeah, I, I took it seriously from the get go. I think I invested. Um, quite a bit in my coaching. I, I went for two months to to the Crusaders um, in New Zealand and just stayed there and lived there for, for, and spent time with the Crusaders and the Crusaders Academy. Um, at that time, a guy called John Haggard who was a, a good player and he was at the Highlanders before. I think he actually coached the New Zealand women's team not, not too long ago. Um, but he, he ran the program there and it was... It was such a good experience to to go and learn what New Zealand does and how they do things and why are they so good. And I mean, the Crusaders 
was just a, I mean, they're such a successful or, or, or club or, or team. So, so yeah, so I invested initially quite a bit in that. Um, in South Africa, like, I, I think I'm lucky enough to know all most of the coaches at, at the Sharks and the Bulls and the Cheetahs and the Stormers. So, you know, I go for a week at a time and just spend time there and, and observe and, and learn. So, so that was always a goal to, to be the, the head coach of, of, of UCT. The, the Varsity Cup is a fantastic competition in South Africa. It's um it it's it's really, you know, some players like a guy like Upa Mohoji and this one or two more went straight out of Varsity Cup in the same year to, to become Springboks. So that's a top-level competition that's 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 really exciting. You know, Francho Pino started that that product and they sometimes Sometimes I don't enjoy this, but they try out new laws and it's just Monday night rugby and the students at the stadiums are, are packed and it's on national TV. So, you know, it's, it's a good competition. So I, I really wanted to to get to that to that point. And yeah, I was lucky enough that, you know, the, the exec, exec gave me the opportunity to coach it that, that side for, for a number of years. Yeah. Cool. And so with the like professional development, do you, how did you go about getting to the Crusaders? When you did that, a friend of mine actually um, found out about this. So we um, we contacted John Agate, and we had to get like a few references here that that we can coach a little bit. And oh, great! Let's go. Let's do this. Cool. And um, with the varsity cup, tell me more about that. So. It's like a level, like it's students, and then you've got the Curry Cup, and you've got the top teams, and it's like what would the it's on national TV. So what what would the crowds like? What's what's that like? Uh, so so like it, it changed since this year, like the, the structure because of South Africa joining the URC. But how it generally works, like um, you've got your your top contracted players. So most of them, the majority of them will be students. So, so you get those guys who will play in the Curry Cup, but, but the Curry Cup hasn't started yet. So the unions, if, if you're not in the super rugby side, like they will release them to play Varsity Cup. So you should get a lot of like the promising new talent um, to, to play in the universities. The, you can play between 18 and 25. That's the, the age group for, for Varsity Cup. So, I mean, if you are, I would say from 22 and above, you, you are quite an experienced player by then in that competition. So it's a good thing like for, for unions because at, at some point you kind of share the cost of the player. So you dual contract them. I want them for Varsity Cup, so I, I contribute a bit and they want them for Curry Cup, so, you know, they contract. So that, that's how, how the journey works. So you, you go from there and then most players will go into then the Curry Cup under 21 or... Yeah, still under 21, I think now. And then, or either playing for the promises. And then you do have the student players that really like, they, they're they not um, contracted by a province and they're just very good student rugby players. So I, th- I think that's the one of the challenges is, is managing the balance between the next guy who wants to become a Springbok and the guy who's happy to just be a first-team university player. Um, it's, it's an interesting dynamic, you know, this... Is the serious guy who wants to train afterwards, and the other guy who just wants to drink more beers. So yeah. you have to marry that environment. 
Yeah. And because, yeah, because when I Googled the university or whatever, I saw was it C. Khaleesi, Estabeth, uh, Dialande had gone through there, probably just before at the time you you would have been involved or there, maybe with the 20s. Yeah, I was, I was in the 20s when, when Damien and them were there. Yeah. Um, CR, CR is such a legend. Like he, um, He's still like if we ask him to to do something, he'll come and spend some time with the team. I mean, he wants his volunteer. He says he wants to come and chat to to my players after preseason. He saw how hard they work. I mean, such a he's just an incredible human being. That so yeah, he's. I don't think he actually played too much for UCT. He was pulled up quite um, quite quickly. So it's a bit of a debate in the club. Can we recognize him as a UCT Springbok? He did the preseason, but I don't think he played an official match. So, so it's it's a debate. Can we put him on the honors board or not? Yeah, do for sure. Um, and then so with like coaching, say, uh, switching a bit, but like when we're in preseason now. But how would you go about uh, structuring a preseason? Yeah, yeah, Brian, that will depend on. On, on what you've got, like a, a preseason for me in South Africa looks different to to preseason in in, in Canada. I in, in I'll, I'll go the South African way. That's probably the the higher level than than I currently have. Like you know, I've got this magic number of about a ten week preseason. That's a long time, but I think if if you have your players for ten weeks, four times a week, like you you can get a lot of work done in that space of time. Preseason is. It's just so crucial. Like that's when you do your coaching. Like matches becomes week to week, and sometimes in Africa, even you play two matches a week. It's just management and and tweaking. So that ten weeks of preseason is absolutely crucial. Um, so, so how do you structure it? Once again, is it your first year as a coach? Is it your second year? Where are you? Um, you know, like I followed. I always like will focus on something, you know, like one year I really had a, a conditioning and, and defensive approach. Like that was, I, I recall that like my first year taking over from Ustad, I took them over at quite a low. They had a, the previous year they um, played in the promotion and relegation to stay up in Vastic Cup. So it wasn't a good time. It was also a time when Vastic Cup changed a bit of rules. So we were allowed to before that you were allowed to select non-students and then it was only students so we had to juggle that that challenge so i said like okay um let's focus on our defense that let us down the previous year i went to get the best defense coach i could find in, in cape town he's actually now the stormest defense coach norman laker and and really just like ask my club to support me to to give us a little bit more money to get into the gym and, and get that con- conditioning so, so then you really like what, what I've what I've learned over the years. Like a head coach is, is often you're a salesman, you know. So I just spoke about defense that first year. That's the only thing that came out of my mouth. Um, and then the preseason had that kind of theme, and when we had the the coaching staff to back that up, and we ended up with the best defensive record in in the varsity cup. We just made tackles. We couldn't get the ball back, but we mm-hmm. made a lot of tackles. So, so that's how I, I would structure that. I, I think um, I've made a mistake once before, like kind of do skills, a lot of skills based the first two weeks and then try and implement the systems and then you neglect the skills and that catches up with you um, with you later on. So, so for me, I think, Brian, 
if, if I have a 10 weeks season now, I will look at my the makeup of my team and where we are. If, if I take my club side now, the Lomas, it's my second season with him. We found our, our identity in, in my first year with coaching. We know how we want to play. We know what gives us energy and what doesn't give us energy. So so now I can I can build this out and, and I can really just, just focus on that. So, so we'll go, I can afford now to go hard, heavy on skills because my system is, is I took is taken care of not I need to tweak and we can make a few changes, but everybody understands the system. So I, I can focus now on skills within the system to get those micro skills right, to give us more time on the world, to make better decisions. Um, you know, for, for me, it's big as well to get people excited about something. So I, I used, I said earlier, like the salesman thing, but I'm a big fan of like theming things and get people to buy in, make them excited about it. Um, it's, it's just like, I think you can get lost in, in, in all the things of rugby if, if you don't do that. I mean, I once did the exercise, you take a whiteboard and you say, what do we need to coach a rugby team? And you can start with the forwards. It's, Brian, it's, it's I mean, million you know, things. It's a million things. What do you focus on? You need to pick what you're going to focus on and do that well. And and I think sometimes, sometimes get lost a little bit. They, they, maybe they neglect a few important things or they try to do too many things. So, so I think when you theme something, sell it well, and hopefully it lands. Sometimes it doesn't land with the players and you need to rethink it and, and whatever. But if you can do your preseason with a nice, nice theme that the people buy into, that's almost like the off-field stuff, that's a big win. And then, then the excitement is there on the field to do whatever you want to do to do. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Um, Yeah, that focus, that idea of that, just having that one focus because... Like you say, if you try and do everything, you'll do nothing. You know, you'll do absolutely nothing, and it'll just be it'll just be training for the sake of it. You know, and you'll you'll have nothing yet done at the end of it. And with the defense, uh, an interest when you say that. When I was back in Lansdowne, uh, Mike Ruddock was our coach, and he used to always, always just talk about defense. He's like, what he used to say is, "What kind of team do you like to play against?" what kind of team do you not like to play against? And everyone's like, oh, you like to play against soft teams that like you get front foot and whatever, whatever. And he's like, you don't like playing against. And he's like, all right, we got to become one of those teams we don't like playing against. And uh, every after every single week, he would put up the defensive table and it was the points conceded. And uh, he didn't look at the other table and it was, where were we on the defensive table? Yeah. Like, um, and I think... I don't know how you feel. I think in Canada, it's like, maybe it's not Canada. Maybe I'm unfair. Maybe it's well, like people focus a lot on the attack. And and I don't feel like the training field gets enough defense time. Like I, I'm almost, I think if you go through my defense, my, my session plans, I think you'll get close to a 50-50 split attack on and, and defense. Yeah, I'm very defensive because it's 50% of your game. Um, and you know, like I think, so if I can, you know, I think a lot of coaches, you know, spend so much time on the attacking shape, and you only really use that in, you know, the middle part of the field. But it's hour after hour on the shape, yeah. And 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 often it's, I find like the team doesn't understand the outcome, so we're quick to say, okay, we're gonna go into. One three three one or one three two one. We're quick to, to to throw these these shape numbers out, 
but then I can see when the teams play, like it's almost a bit of nothingness. Like the, they're in the shape, but they actually don't know what what they want to achieve. Do they want to uh, get that you know 60-40 ruck and attack the short side? Do we want to go through them in the middle? Like you know, there's no understanding of what we're actually trying to to achieve achieve with this attack. So I think a lot of coaching time goes wasted in coaching the shape. Players first of all don't understand what the outcome is. And then for about how much of the match, like 20% of the match. So, um, yeah, you need to be street smart when you coach. Yeah, I think to focus on the right things. Oh, 100%. I couldn't agree more. And like I've just experienced too, is that the vast majority of time spent training is learning where you stand in a one, three, three, one and what you do. It's like, do this or do this or do this. And players then are conditioned to think, where am I meant to stand? Where am I meant to stand? Quick, I got to go over here and stand here. Versus learn, and this is attack side, versus learn how to read a defense, beat a defense. It's like you're constantly just conditioned and train yourself to learn where to stand in a system. And it's like, why? Or like, you know, no against no defense. And it's like, then you don't learn how to play against defense. And yeah, likewise, in Ireland now, in Ireland when I was there, a lot of, a lot of set piece, a lot of def- like defense as well, for sure. Like focus, we would spend more time like our scrum mall line out, like set piece. We would have just been like, so- like that was the cornerstone. And once again, in the team I was with Lansdowne, it was always like our scrum was just incredible because once again, he used to say it every time they knock on the ball, they know it's coming every time. And it was just so set, it was a bit more set piece focused, but still 50 50. But yeah, here for sure, it's just it's probably 80% attack, a few bit of line outs, and a bit of defense. But yeah, yeah, no, it's it's like you know, even last night when I when I watched a session, you know, from the, from a New Zealand coach, and and as we know, New Zealand is very focused on the basics and, and they can you know do run catch pass for hours and hours, and they're so good at it. Uh, and there were a lot of like age grade coaches, you know, during this session. I thought that's good. Like, you know, when I went to New Zealand, I remember I thought I'm going to come back with all these technical things, and I came back with the basics. It's all about the basics. And I thought, yes, like all all these young coaches are going to see this. And then after about 20 minutes, this coach went went into one three three one shape, and he started to coach that. Thought, oh, no man, I guarantee you, like we're going to see all our under 14 coaches now trying to coach this shape and i think like focus on the skills man like don't try and get a 14 year old to you know to be so structured and you take his decision making away and you take all the flair away out of it so um that's one thing but but you mentioned you know the, the different shapes and, and the focuses so you know at the time when i went to the crusaders they played this two for two shape um it was very successful at, at, the, at the time. I thought defenses kind of started to work that out. But what I can say, they did that in everything they do, like in their micro drills. When they play a chaos game, everything was about that shape. Everything was about getting the right place in the right in the right place on the field. So, so their second rowers, I mean, they can make decisions. They can mm-hmm. get the pass out the back. They know when to gang. They know when to give the tip pass. Because they're coaching that part of it. I mean, by the time they play a match or they've done it a thousand times, they've been in that chaos situation so many times that they can do it. And then they do it 
um, without pressure, like almost you can fall asleep, it gets you bored. Um, versus when we coach maybe more amateur kind of rugby, we've got limited time with players. So we implement two for two or one, three, three, one, but the players haven't been in that situation. So then you get frustrated and you say, oh, like, why is it not working? It's working because your second rower's name is not Brody Retallic. As simple as that. He hasn't, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's not that player, he's not that gifted, and he hasn't seen this picture a million times. So, so I think, you know, I don't know, like, keep on saying this with street smart. When, when you're not in a professional setup, you need to think a little bit differently about it. You can't just copy and paste what's going on TV. Yes, obviously, there's this good stuff and you see, you get inspired, but I think there's too much copy and paste going on. 100%. I couldn't agree more with the copy and paste of it. Um, yeah, it's it's people look at, and it's people look at what the All Blacks do. And that's why every low, like, when you say amateur level, Everyone, it's all oh, we do one three three one. Why? Because the All Blacks did it eight years ago or six years ago, you know. And they've all, I think, all I, from what I see, all the pro teams have moved away from it. There, you won't see like if you look at a um, an international game from six, maybe six ish years ago, you'll see the clear one three three one across the field. But if you look at an international game now, they're not doing that. They're I, they look they're very flexible and fluid within them. Um, different parts of the field like if they hit a wide rock you know like it changes then to whatever two three two one one two two three you, you know it changes around and it's but yeah we still and i'm i believe i'm just waiting for the point i, I I'm, I'm really interested actually at what point will amateur teams not be doing the one three three one that's what i'm interested in. you know when will they when will the the, yeah. the penny drop and it's like oh wait a minute uh we're not just going to do one, three, two, one. Anyway, that's something that I'm actually just curious about. Yes. So on, on, while we're on this topic of shape, so one of my mentors is a guy called Alan Zondag, um, very experienced coach. He coached Saracens. Um, his most recent, um, he was director of rugby at the Bulls about two years ago. And, uh, you know, he, 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 I won't say he hates it, but he doesn't, you know, like all of these pots and, and, and thinks it's so prescriptive. Um, so he helped me, um, you know, to, to develop a, a different kind of a taxism, which I did, you know, at Varsity Cup level with, with UCT. I called it the 40 shape, but it's just something something different. It's it's playing more in the middle of the field and attacking the short size, you know, have your targets where to, where to set your rucks. Um, you know, I've learned through it, like there's a bit of negatives to, to a different system because you can go a little bit lateral at times. But you know what, we got to move the ball um, way more. We made more passes, and with a clever number nine, like the amount of tries you can score on the short side on the rugby field is amazing. And you know, you can make things so simple. Like, um, you will just say, like, if you don't know where to go, if you're forward, if you're number one, two, and three on your back, go and stand behind the 10 if you're not in the ruck. If you're number four or five, go and stand behind 12. If you're seven, six, seven, or eight, go and stand up behind number 30. So he creates this tandem or even trident structures. So we don't set up, you know, shallow. It, it's just getting layers of, of attack. And it allows people to, to offload and get continuity. Um, I haven't had the guts to try that last one yet. I, I might still do that. But um, I mean, it's so good. Like this guy has been through professional rugby. He's been everywhere. And um, he's happy to try new things and think about rugby a little bit differently and that, that's what I enjoy like just like be out the box out of the box and try you know 
You know, that's the fun part as well. Like a hundred percent. That's, that's what's fun about coaching. And what I find, because even when I was playing, I was just like, like I had certain ideas on the game, whatever. And, uh, I coach like I've been coached for a few years like and it's just you get to implement you just get to think of things and implement them you know versus like just trying to copy and paste like that's not you're just I don't know that's that's not fun for me yeah and I think it's it's part of a, a coaching journey like you need to take those risks because you're going to succeed or fail but that's part of your journey and, and that's how you learn that's how you build experience um you know I think Kind of for me, like my own definition of experience is you start to see, see things a little bit sooner or earlier than anybody else. Mm. You know, okay, cool, like this is how it's going to go or that might or might not work. And, and I think, you know, even like, let's take this, let's take coaching like Rusty, Russell Earnshaw and them started this gamification. I'm a big fan of gamification, but... Now I kind of observe some coaches going overboard with it. Like the only thing they do is gamification. And then you get the old school coaches, they can't stand it. They just want to do drills. But there's no right or wrong. Like in mm -hmm. the right environment, you need to know which one to do. You, you know, sometimes like you're going to, like in an academy setup, I've, I've done it last year with, with school, school children in, in Canada. Like I, we started initially with all these games which they played fairly well, but then you put them in a, in a real match and their skills failed them. So I went back to, to like drill-based stuff, fundamental stuff, how to pass, and then went back into games. And then like it was evident, it was easy to spot with like how much better they got. Because I think I went too quickly into games and neglected the fundamentals. So so as a coach, you need to know, you know, where to let go and where to volume up and which one to volume down. Um even, yeah, so I guess it's that experience thing and trying things in your journey as a coach and then you will know what to do. It's also how you, I, I guess, how you communicate with players, like, you know, how you give information. Sometimes you allow players to, they call it the, the pull and the push approach, right? So it's either as a coach, you just tell people what to do or you allow players to, to come up with ideas and you work with them. So with the wave that you were part of, um, I was pretty much just giving in, but I, I, we didn't have a lot of time. It was a, a good competition and we wanted to get the outcome. So I just kind of know, like, there's no time for too much play involvement. I'm just going to give you and then we're going to follow that. Well, if we do it again, it will be a different approach because now we also found our identity and we can work on that. So, yeah, interesting. Like, I, I think you need to give yourself as a coach, like, that opportunity to fail in your journey and learn things so that you can know what to do when. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's interesting with get when you say getting that balance, like have you having to you have to look and see where your team are at, what they what will help them versus as you say, just doing the same stuff all the time because that's something that you might be good at. And that's something that as a coach as well you can get comfortable like a player can get comfortable and you can actually maybe get good at coaching a certain session or, or kind of sessions and you just keep doing that and then that's not what's gonna help your players develop more you know but you as a coach can get into that just oh this is what we do this is how we do it yeah i, I think it's a it, yeah i mean you you led with that it is a balance and it's a difficult one um, and you, you're going to get it wrong at, at times, but 
you know, as long as it doesn't get monotonous and boring to the players, I, I think, and, and you can tweak your things and your approach so that you can keep, you know, that kind of excitement about things. I think you will, you will succeed most of the times, you know. Yeah, I think excitement as well, like you say, is just so important. Like there's nothing worse as a player when you just feel like a coach is just, when it's just boring and they're just telling you to do something and it's like you don't know why and it's just like boring. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like you have yeah. to, like the players have to be getting excited. And you mentioned earlier about defense, like and just creating excitement around different things. And that's just such an important part for me. I think, you know, versus just throwing stuff at players and feeling monotonous and boring and going yeah. through emotions. And I think with that, like, this excitement and theming and, and get players to, to buy in, like, I, I always use, whenever I can, like a mental and performance coach. I think, I think every CEO in this world needs a mental and performance coach to, to run things fast. But, you know, coaching is... It's, it's a tough world. It's, it's people judge you and and your product is out there every week, you know, so, so you need to be on, on top of things. And it, it can, especially if you're head coach, it, it, it can be a lonely kind of journey, you know, um, especially when you and your team goes through a bit of a bad patch. Um, you're on your own. You take the pressure and the criticism comes to you. Um, so, so to have that support of a mental and performance coach for me is, is so crucial. And, you know, I've used various people over the years, um, but I think like they just help you to, to get your messaging right. Because what do you do as a coach? You sometimes get so focused on one thing and, and the result is obviously so important for you. So if you can have somebody to just look at the, the whole thing and say, okay, cool. Listen, I don't agree with you. I don't think you need to go into the first team meeting with this message. Like, let's tweak the message. Let's do that. Um, you know, let's be more relaxed this week. Let's, you know, start with a, a fun game, whatever. I just rely so much on, on these people to get the environment right. Mm. And, and I think like over the years, like, like I said earlier to you, like this teaming thing and, and themes and, and, and those things, that's why I think I'm focusing on it so much. Like I might probably sometimes overdo it lately because I feel like this, if you get buy-in from your players and they're fun and your team meetings are not a long, boring one-hour video session where half the guys will sleep is short and it's engaging and it's, it's actually fun, you know, then you get so much more out of, out of your, your performance. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think that is something perhaps that people overlook sometimes, but it is so crucial to get your environment Correct. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think what you're saying there as well is like, like number one is that the players are enjoying it and and engage and like wanting to get out there and play and just enthusiastic about everything that's happening. And if because if you don't have that, you have nothing. Like you can, if you're like just over coaching, throw and throw and like just you know just bombarding players, and they're not like enjoying it and enthusiastic about achieving something and wanting to be there around each other. It doesn't matter if you have Eddie Jones there giving the information, you know, or well, maybe they might get enthusiastic if he shows up, but you know what I mean? It doesn't matter what the, has been thrown at them. It's just like, it doesn't matter what information you give them. You're, you're not going to get the outcomes you want. Like I just, you know, 
the first part is just having players that are excited and happy and just want to get after it. And that's what you say with the mental performance coach can help them do that. And then the you as a head coach or whatever can can implement or can add on top of that. Yeah, I, I think, you know, for, for me personally, like I think if you ask people in Cape Town to describe me, they will say I'm very technical. And if you th- I think if you ask people in Canada to describe me, they will say, I'm very much off-field and, and fun-based. So it's, it's, it's interesting, and it's a sign for me how I kind of maybe grew as a coach to start to acknowledge there's more to rugby than just the technical. You know, yeah. um, as a young guy, I want, I'm a recipe guy, so I want things to be perfect. But, but your eyes open up and you, you start to see what's important. Yeah, yeah and because when you get to, I've just seen as well, as I've grown older, but when you get to a certain age, like there's coaching and you've kind of seen nearly everything before, you know, like you've seen a lot before when you get to a certain point and it's, you just want to enjoy it and like give little bits. Like if you're coaching people who are in their late twenties, you're not going to change them so much, regardless of what level they're at. You know, you're not going to make, you're not going to make them superstars or whatever you it's, it's like say then when you're preparing teams, it's just, you just give one or two little bits and try and get them all cohesive playing together. But you're not someone who's, once again, I think it may be over, I don't know, over 25, six, you know, if you have them two days a week or three days a week, or, you know, they're not in academy systems. It's not as if you have so much time with them. You're not going to change the way they are or whatever, whatever. It's, it's getting everyone together and then, you know, giving the little tweaks where you can here and there. Yeah. I think like majority of my coaching life was in the age group up to 25. So the last two years, I've, I'm fortunate enough now to, to be in coaching more open players. Um, and it's, it's quite enjoyable to work with, with the guys approaching 30. Like you said, they, they've got a base and understand what works for them and, and what they can and cannot do. So you just literally yeah, need to get their buy-in and, um, and they will naturally be quite le- good leaders because they've got more experience and they will, the, the younger guys will, will kind of follow that. Um, so yeah, it's it's getting it's getting the energies that at the right place to to buy into what you're trying to do, I guess. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier about um like challenging times as a head coach and you know lonely. Da, da, da. What has been your most challenging time as a head coach? Yeah, I, I think it was my my first years at, at UCT. I it was a lot of rule changes and you know a lot of senior players. I think like 13 players with over 50 caps just all graduated and left at the same time so it was starting with with a young team and, and UCT won the competition the Vasti Cup two years before I started and then you, you're like fighting to stay alive you know and then it was your, your reputation goes quickly so I would say the recruitment part of it you know getting players like Marty's University of Stellenbosch 50 kilometers you know down the road like they were at that point in time like almost unbeatable. Um, so, so all this the top school board places wants to go there. So, so it was challenging for me to to convince them to take us seriously, come to UCT like we've won it before, we can do it again. But it's, it's we, we're rebuilding here a little bit. Um, and also like you know even the the, the agents, you know, all the players, most good players have agents in, in South Africa. So to get them to take us seriously, to to want to send players there. Um, so so that first two years, you know. Gradually, we started to win more and win more. Last year, it was my first year where they lost in the final of, of, of 
the cup this year. They finished top of the lock, but lost in the semi. So, I mean, we we got we built the club back up, but it's challenging if, if your reputation goes there. Eh? Like, mm-hmm. convince. How do you convince a top player that wants to play for the Spinners to come to your city? Or to come to my club if we went through a bit of a, a patch. And, and now we've changed it around, luckily. You know, the guys are coming again. But that's that's how it is. Yeah. And what did you find, like, recruitment's huge for every club player, or sorry, every university or club, or whatever. And um, what did you find worked? Was it, like, given that, like, you creating a vision and then showing that to them? Or how, how did you go about changing things here? Yeah, like, if, if I can go specifically on... on in that club they do things a little bit differently um i think more of the universities might be more traditional and conservative it is very liberal and out there i mean we will have our formal um number ones for match day at one stage i, I think we had we had like bluish blue like pants and it's like pink thighs it's just mm. a little bit out there and so so you sell what you sell in, in that case, it was the best, it is the best academic university in South Africa, and it is um, at times a top 100 in, in the world. So they take the academic seriously. Um, so you sell that, you're going to get the best degree in South Africa. If there's life after rugby, but there's your degree. Um, we've, we've done some work and we discovered like you know, about 90% of all the players like that came through the rugby system eventually graduated. So we said, like, we're going to help you. We, we set up a tutoring system. We partnered with the company and we tutor our players. We want them to pass. So, so you sell them that, that like, really like the degree and then you sell them Cape Town, the mountain and the sea and the lifestyle. Um, so if, if, yeah, if players are open-minded on, on that, then, then they come through. I think that's also sometimes, a, I think it's the same with UBC over here. Like, it's hard to get in. They don't just take anybody. You have to have certain grades. So to get into UST, you, you have to be, almost a rocket scientist versus some of the other universities you know you, you don't have to be so that was a, another challenge like to, yeah to, to make a winning team out of rocket scientists <laughs> yeah. yeah for sure it's funny when i was in the states oh, 2016 to 18 i was coaching lindenwood and lindenwood was a small school not so difficult to get into well well done to everyone who got in there but we went and played against stanford and uh hockeyed them and it was just like chatting to the coach after he's like man i walk around campus trying to get people to come play rugby because like how can i recruit how can how can i how can i try recruit a rugby player you go up to a high school player like hey you want to go to stanford what's your grades are you are you a rocket scientist like you say <laughs> yeah that's it's i think i think a lot of universities and stuff have those challenges but um that's 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 good I mean, that's that's balance in life right that's what we want yeah and what would you say to yourself when you were starting out, if you could chat to maybe when you started with the 20s? What, what, what advice would you give yourself? Like when you were starting uh, your first, first kind of like okay. proper, I'm not going to say advice, proper. Yeah. So my advice to myself 10 years ago, like if I can redo that. Um, yeah, I, I think I will go back to what I said earlier, like go, go less technical. And, and really try and, and go more, you know, teaming, get excitement around things, maybe be less serious, take myself a little bit less seriously. I, I can quickly go quite quite serious. So I think I will just maybe give myself a little bit more slack and, and relax on, on being perfect on the field. 
and maybe create a little bit more more vibe around the whole campaign and what we're trying to do and achieve here. Yeah, and so that's good. Yeah, good point. And so, what do you mean there by, um, like you would have looked at the result very much of how uh, how good a coach you are, or you know, just like your whole worth is it? It's like, oh, we lost, I'm crap. Like we won, I'm good. Is that what you're saying? Or no? Yeah, I'm kind of. I, I think the results is obviously important. That's how you get judged at the end of the day. It doesn't matter if you. As a as a coach, see well, my team did exactly what I asked them, what I, what I asked them to do, um, but we still lost the game. So I think it's a yes and a no answer. You need the results. That's what relieves or creates pressure, right? Mm. Like that's what as, as a head coach, like if you're going to lose everything, but your team plays beautiful rugby, you're not going to build a reputation. Mm. Unfortunately, you know, winning is the currency for success. So, so I think that was always that pressure. Like I said, I wanted to become the head coach of, of UST, so you need to win and, and, and show that. So certainly the results are part of it. But, but I think also, like, yeah, our players implement the things that, that you work on on the field at the end of the day. Because that's what you try to do, right? You get 23 people to do the same thing quite well so that you can beat your opponent at the end of the day. Yeah, it's interesting though. Like with like players are such a huge part of it. You know, like you go in if you go in year one, like of you can have a a plan. You know, a three, a probably like a three year plan. Like like you say, if you're in a university, like recruiting. Like if you just land, maybe like you did last year, like land with the the bottom team, of the league. Like you can, it's nigh on impossible to win. You know, with the players, like the players win the games you know if, if you just don't have the players it doesn't matter who you have coaching them you know like that is a big part of it isn't it in, in yeah. a one-year season yeah i think i'm um, you know good players makes good coaches yeah um for sure but but like um coaching you know what, what's the art of that you need to change behavior and change culture so so you refer to to my current club so, so that's a journey now Mm. That is, we need to change slowly but surely, change the culture and change the behavior so that they actually take winning seriously um, and, and build on that. It, it's, and then that's the, you know, that's, I guess, where, where the understanding of the off field kind of environment and the community and the bigger picture, that's where that comes in, you know. So, so you, you will eventually, like, out of the same players, if, if the same group stays together for three years, we'll start winning. If, if we get the culture piece right and, and we get um, the community to understand what we're trying to do, those kind of things. So it is a little bit of a, a bigger play than just yeah, between the four lines, 80 minutes on a Saturday. Yeah, 100%. Like, yeah, and it's having, I suppose we kind of touched on before, but having them, um, like as a coach, having a, a vision of where you want to go. And I think as well that like, if, you know, when you're saying results can make it difficult or whatever, for sure, like if you start losing, you know, it's like then it's challenging as a coach because that's, it's on you or whatever, whatever. But I think like, I'm not that experienced, but like if, if you have a vision of what you want to do over the next one, two or three years or how long, and you set that out and that's what you want to do and that's understood, then it, you, you go and follow that. And it's not, you might win in week one or two. And it's, you know, like Pat Lamb talked about this in Connacht. Like they didn't, they won two or three games this first year. They didn't win anything, 
you know, and they were just getting hockeyed and everyone's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? But he had a three-year plan. And like Fergie talked about this as well, like rebuilding teams. It's like, you know, he was a master. They didn't dip too much at all, but you know, they have, you put a plan in place. So it's not, you're not looking week to week, you know, and you're taking a step back and it's like, this is what I want to do over two years, three years versus throwing everything on winning this game at this weekend. Because if you keep, I think, looking, try and win this game this weekend and keep your head down at like this weekend, how can we beat this one team? You're just going week to week and you won't really do anything. No, 100%. I think another example is um, Bill Welsh. Um, you know, oh, the, yeah. the, the score that gave us up. He's, he's finished like you know, almost winless one or two of the seasons and he's being regarded as one or two of the best ever coaches in, in the NFL. So, um, you know, it, it, it just shows you like, yeah, the, the best guys out there, they're getting challenged and they recognize it. It takes time to change human behavior. That's what they did. They changed the culture. Mm. Um, and I had to think the other day, like culture is what you tolerate in a, in a team. So if you have this macro plan and micro plans, like as you said, like you've got your day, your week to week and then your bigger picture, um, you need to be very specific on what you tolerate to, to build that culture that you want. Because if, if you can't get that part right over, if your goal is to win in three years, then your that culture piece is is, is so vital. Um, and I think you know that that's something, especially in the last twelve months or so, is, is the values of, of a team. Like I've, I've done a a course with a, a Barrett. Um, Barrett Values is, is, is of course with, with Chapman and Co. And they are they are business coaches and people like that. So, so I, I got so interested in that. So I, I invested in that course. And it just helps you to to create the core values that, that you can can build your culture on. And I, I enjoy that so much. And that's the stuff you enjoy as well. So so you know, with the way of like competition was one of the values. That's what the players selected out of the list and the questions we, we asked them. So then it's so easy. Uh, it's so easy to live day-to-day competitiveness. You just make your drills competitive. You make little quizzes before training. It's just ways to, to live your values versus, oh, we just did this session with a business coach. It's on the whiteboard there. Our values are all these cliches, integrity and mm-hmm. accountability and all these words. Great, cool, nice 45 minute session. Let's forget about it going forward. So if you can learn and you can really nail your values, which fits into this this culture piece that you need to get right over a long period of time, you, you're going to be in a good space. 100%. And uh, just chatting recently with Peter Dooley on here, and he spoke about that Leinster of three core values and that they live them every day. And they, they you know, that's what a Leinster rugby player is. And it's just it's entwined in everything that they do those three core values yeah and one of the a good point you made um the culture is what you accept and a, a saying or just a kind of mindset i like is the standards you walk past is the standards you accept or the you know the standards you fall to and it's like you know something happens in a team that's not acceptable but it's if you just say like oh just it's not that big a deal it's 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 the biggest deal you know, like, for instance, if someone's being a dickhead, someone else in a team or little things like even just like one off instance, little things like that. Like if that is not absolutely stomped out and made very clear that it's not acceptable and, and punished and you can have this in place, like the first time could be, hey, you know, have a word, you know, the second time it could be. And then, the you know, third, there has to be like escalations to it. But like, 
you just can't let things slide within a yeah. team. I mean, we, we've been throwing out some catchy phrases now. So a, a good one on that point of yours is um, practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. So if you don't, you refer to that little thing that you can't just let go now. If you see it, if, you, if you're not going to deal with it right then, then it's going to be permanent. It's mm. going to exist. That little bit of cancer in your team or that little um, core blind spot or skill that's, that's missing, that's going to be permanently there. So, you know, then it's hard to, to coach it out of players again. You need to, like, have a real refocus and it's, it's, it's valuable time goes then wasted on that. So. 100%. Hey, Essie, thanks so much for your time. Been uh, unreal chatting and I'm sure I'll see you around. Yeah, th- thank you, Brian. It, it was, it's always cool to, to be on a podcast and uh, I've enjoyed listening to your other ones. So uh, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Cheers for listening in today. Great getting Essie on. He's a very knowledgeable coach and top man. Just want to give a shout out to the BC Pathway players that were playing at the Western Championships this weekend. I worked with a couple of the groups doing mindset and mental performance sessions in the lead up and delighted to hear back from some of you on how much it helped you not dwell on mistakes over the tournament, play in the zone and most importantly have fun. If you have any questions on anything send me a DM on my Instagram or Twitter. The handle is at offfieldrugby for both. Please send the pod on some friends and Thank you so much to those of you sharing the post on Instagram. If you want to be an absolute legend, you can leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening right now. That takes 30 seconds, but really helps other people find the pod with the way the search algorithm is. Thanks again for clicking in today and spending some time here. Have a brilliant rest of your day. Cheers.